Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we're delighted our weekly roundtable is back. We discuss the Biden administration stimulus bill, considered by many to be historic. Some are making references to FDR's New Deal. Is this a fair comparison? And as Joe Biden plans his next moves, including on infrastructure and immigration, Will the filibuster stop him in his tracks? Also, the very worrying move of a spate of Republican voter suppression laws introduced in at least 43 states this since the presidential election. And is there any daylight, really, between Joe Biden and Trump's foreign policy? Our panelists are Dr. Gerald Horn, Laura Carlson, and Jackie Goldberg. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. President Biden outlined a plan to make all U.S. adults eligible for coronavirus vaccinations by May 1st. And he said, get the nation back to closer to normal by the 4th of July. He spoke in his first primetime address to the nation. All adult Americans will be eligible to get a vaccine no later than May 1. That's much earlier than expected. Let me be clear. That doesn't mean everyone's going to have that shot immediately, but it means you'll be able to get in line beginning May 1. Biden made repeated calls for unity in a speech that came two short months after the bloody insurrection at the U.S. Capitol aimed at preventing him from assuming office. He did not mention Trump by name or the Capitol attack. He did denounce the attacks on Asian Americans, which many have blamed on former President Trump's repeated references to the coronavirus as the Asian flu or by other derogatory terms. Vicious hate crimes against Asian Americans who've been attacked, harassed, blamed, and scapegoated. At this very moment, so many of them, our fellow Americans, they're on the front lines of this pandemic trying to save lives. And still, still, they're forced to live in fear for their lives just walking down streets in America. It's wrong, it's un-American, and it must stop. Oklahoma's Republican governor has joined those in Texas and Mississippi. Governor Kevin Stitt announced he's reopening Oklahoma fully and dropping the state mask mandate. There will be no statewide restrictions on events or Oklahomans. I'm also removing the requirements to wear a mask in state buildings. More Oklahomans are getting vaccines each day, and the CDC's new guidelines mean wearing a mask should be a personal decision based on your circumstances. Despite its invocation of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC has urged people to continue wearing masks and physically distancing. 
with some exceptions involving fully vaccinated people. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton has sued Travis County and Austin City officials over their decision to continue requiring mask wearing in public. Paxton had threatened a suit after the local officials decided this week to exempt the city and county from Republican Governor Greg Abbott's lifting of the state's mask mandate Wednesday. Austin's mayor and the Travis County executive said they were merely enforcing COVID-19 prevention rules from the medical director and health authority for the city and county as they contend state law provides. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's grip on power appears increasingly threatened as a majority of state lawmakers have called for his resignation and police say they are ready to investigate a new groping allegation. At least 121 members of the state assembly and Senate have said publicly they believe Cuomo can no longer governor and should quit office now. The count includes 65 Democrats and 56 Republicans. State legislative Democrats have launched an impeachment investigation. It could become a crime to taunt a police officer in Kentucky under a bill that has passed the state Senate. The Republican-sponsored bill would criminalize anyone who accosts, insults, taunts, or challenges a law enforcement officer. Democrats said it could be used to target peaceful protesters and call the legislation unnecessary and unreasonable. Six Republicans joined Democrats in voting no. Republicans hold super majorities in both the Kentucky House and Senate. Passage came in the run-up to the one-year anniversary of the Louisville police killing of Breonna Taylor in her home on a no-knock warrant. Progressive Democrats introduced legislation to permanently forgive rent and mortgage payments for those who cannot pay during the pandemic with no impact on their credit rating. Minnesota Democrat Ilhan Omer is sponsor of the legislation. I introduced the Rent and Mortgage Cancellation Act, which would permanently cancel all rent and mortgage payments until April 2022. The legislation would also create a home lenders relief fund to fully compensate landlords and mortgage holders. It would also establish an optional fund that would help expand affordable housing on even after the pandemic ends. Omar and the 20 co-sponsors say the pandemic and resulting job losses have put millions of Americans at risk of housing instability and homelessness. Authorities say gunmen attacked a school in northwestern Nigeria and kidnapped 30 students just weeks after a similar attack in the region blamed on bandits. The latest abduction took place last night in Nigeria's Kaduna state, An official said both boys and girls were abducted. It's the fourth such attack on a Nigerian school since last December. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and we're delighted that our weekly roundtable is back. And um, let us welcome our panelists. I I also want to say that uh, our weekly roundtable, really popular among our listeners, and um, Jackie Goldberg, Laura Carlson, Dr. Gerald Horn, they're like a mini think tank. So we just want to lift them up and and really thank them and, and show our appreciation to them. So if you do and you appreciate our weekly roundtable, let us hear from you. Um, and let us now welcome 
our panelists. I'd like to welcome Jackie Goldberg, governing board member of the Los Angeles School Board District 5. She is a former member of the California State Assembly. Uh, Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council before being elected to council. She served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome back. It's been way too long. It's good to be back. Okay, wonderful. And uh, Laura Carlson, is uh, her phone has crashed, so we're trying to hook her up uh, on another way, likely via Zoom. Um, but right now, let me welcome Dr. Gerald Horn, Moore's Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the political economy of boxing. He's also the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. And uh, White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. Also, Jazz and Justice, Racism and the Political Economy of the Music. Um, Dr. Gerald Horn, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Horn, I have to say, your uh, recent book, The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing, we offered that as one of our thank you gifts in this recent fund drive, and it was one of the most popular uh, thank you gifts. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Horn. <laughs> I know our listeners will be looking forward uh, to getting it. And uh, we are still uh, trying to get Laura Carlson in so that we could welcome her. But let us start first with our first round. On Thursday, March 11th, U.S. President Joe Biden signed a $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package named the American Rescue Plan into law, implementing one of the largest stimulus measures in U.S. history. Let us actually go to a clip now of a Biden signing um, that uh, stimulus package. Good afternoon, and we're coming on the air because right now President Biden is set to sign his landmark $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. You see the president there in the Oval Office. Let's listen. In the, uh, the weeks that this bill has been discussed and debated, it's clear that an overwhelming uh, percentage of uh, the American people, Democrats, independents, or Republican friends, have made it clear, the people out there, made it clear they strongly support the American Rescue Plan. Yesterday, with the final passage of the plan in the House of Representatives, uh, their voices were heard and refl reflected in everything we have in this bill. And I believe this is, and most people I think do as well, this historic legislation is about rebuilding the backbone of this country and giving people in this nation, working people, middle-class folks, uh, people who built the country, a fighting chance. That's what the essence of it is. And uh, I'm going to have a lot more to say about that uh, tonight in the next couple of days and be able to take your questions. But in the meantime, what I'm going to do is sign this bill and uh, make the presentation tonight, and then uh, there's going to be plenty of opportunities. We're going to be on the road, not only talking about what I'm talking about tonight is the impact on the virus and how we're going to end this pandemic. And we're going to talk at all the elements of the bill 
beginning on Friday and Saturday through the week. All righty, and I understand that we have now been able to find another way to welcome Laura Carlson. So let us welcome her. Laura Carlson, director of the Americas program and works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization. Based in Mexico City, she is a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura Carlson is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura Carlson, welcome. Thank you, Margaret. It's great to be back. All righty, yeah. It's been way too long. And we've just been introducing, Laura, our first uh, segment on the American Rescue Plan Biden's uh, stimulus bill. The stimulus package, um, known as the American Rescue Plan, provides a third round of one-time stimulus payments up to $1,400 for most people in the United States. So y'all look out for your checks. The stimulus package also extends additional unemployment support to millions and includes an overhaul and expansion of the child tax credit. The American Rescue Plan overhauls the child tax credit by expanding the benefit from $2,000 annually to $3,600 per child, as much of that. The child tax credit will be expanded to $3,600 for each child under six years old and $3,000 for each child between six to 17 years old. It also includes for the child tax credit impoverished households that were formerly left out of any tax credits, including moms on welfare, and allocates the credit via monthly cash payments rather than uh, once a year at tax time. And um, key elements of the stimulus package also include expanded unemployment benefits with $300 of weekly supplement through Labor Day. Also, emergency paid leave for over 100 million people, a 15% increase in food stamps, and funds for black farmers, among others. It also allocates funds to help schools reopen, provides economic support for cities and states experiencing budget shortfalls, and assists in the distribution of COVID-19 vaccine doses. Um, Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris are reportedly scheduled to tour the country next week to promote the American Rescue Plan. However, uh, there's consternation among um, many because the package does not include a $15 minimum wage. Very upsetting, as you can imagine, uh, to many 
of our listeners and to many people. Uh, the Senate parliamentarian claimed the wage increase did not qualify under those rules to be introduced in the package, so it was taken out. Although the Poor People's Campaign and others have said that Vice President Kamala Harris certainly um, could have um, basically overruled the Senate parliamentarian, so we'll see how all of that goes. So there are a few other things in, in the package, but what I'd like to do is to start with you, Laura Carlson, and um, give your reaction to it. I mean, there people are talking about it as, oh, this is huge, uh, comparing it to the FDR's New Deal, and it really shifts the direction of uh, social policy. And I suppose they're referring to the child tax credits in particular. Um, so your thoughts on on the bill and also any comments on any of the areas in the legislation. Laura Carlson. I think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic about this bill and not just for the scope of it, the 1.9 trillion, which is historic in itself, but for the way that it's oriented really very different from uh, the rescues that we saw under the Trump administration. For one thing, it's very popular. According to the latest poll, 66% of the population supports it with only 25% actively against it. So the GOP put itself in a, in a very unpopular position by opposing it. And although it's, it's billed as a rescue and relief measure and not announced as a longer term tool, tool to attack structural inequalities, it does have elements that could lead to that. And especially if many of those most important key elements are extended into a more permanent reweaving of the national safety net. You've mentioned what's in it, the expanded tax credits, especially for parents, more unemployment and rental assistance, food aid, health, health insurance subsidies. You know, this, this changes the lives of people all over the country in the midst of this pandemic and potentially puts them in a position to rise out of poverty, uh, as I say, in a more long-term way. Uh, it's notable that uh, undocumented people are now covered because they removed the prohibition against giving any type of aid to couples, families with mixed status where you have one undocumented worker and one worker. And so there's access to the relief and we've seen tearful testimonies in the media about what that means for many families throughout the country. Western states had already been including them in cash payments, but now it's federal policy. Uh, so there's a big major step forward there. The New York Times reports that the Columbia University Center on Poverty and Social Policy is saying that these measures could reduce poverty by a third and lift nearly 13 million people out of poverty, particularly black Americans, Hispanic Americans and poor families with children who will benefit the most. And then one of the most important measures that you measure, that you mentioned, Margaret, is this child tax credit. Uh, child poverty, they say, could be reduced by more than half. Imagine that what that means, uh, not only now, but for generations to come. So this is being considered one of the most effective sets of policies for the reduction of child poverty. And again, because of the structural racism and discrimination in the country, that will have a particular impact on black and Latinx children. 
um, the three tax credits, the child tax credit and the child and dependent care tax credit, uh, along with the uh, earned income, can really make a big difference. And in California, the, another study said that child poverty could actually be reduced from 17.4%, which is very high, to 8.7%. Um, you mentioned what was in that. The hope then is that this will now become permanent. And there seems to be momentum in Congress, both congressional members and President Biden have said that they are, are in favor of making this permanent. So if there's a child cash benefit payments that are no longer just seen as a stopgap measure for a year, but long-term, then what we're talking about is not relief, but a really overdue social justice measure, especially for gender justice, because especially if they're oriented toward the mother or the primary caregiver, then what society is doing is recognizing what we've seen so clearly in the pandemic, the role of the care economy, the way that women have brought that forward without being remunerated or recognized in many cases, and the uh, the way that this kind of a measure directly channeled to those women in the majority who are doing those care jobs can not only reduce child poverty, but reduce major inequalities in society. Thank you, Laura Carlson and Jackie Goldberg. Before we have you and Dr. Horn weigh in, just another piece to consider is that on Thursday, the AFL-CIO, the largest federation of unions in the United States, called on Democrats to reform the filibuster, the Senate rules standing in the way of enactment of some of their top priorities for the Biden administration. Now, Biden, as we know, a former longtime senator, has so far not endorse efforts to get rid of the filibuster with conservative Democrats. Um, and actually, Joe Biden is saying that the White House, um, from the White House, is saying his preference is to keep it. Now, this is according to Politico. And also, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who now has it seems quite a lot of power, a conservative Democrat, he has vowed to, quote, not vote to bust the filibuster under any condition, end of quote. Meanwhile, on March 11th, the international community marked one year since the COVID-19 virus was declared a pandemic. And since then, more than 529,000 people in the United States have died as a result, and 29.1 million infected more than any other country in the entire world, this according to Johns Hopkins University. And during a speech marking the one-year anniversary on Thursday, uh, President Biden directed states to make all adults in the United States eligible to receive vaccines no later than May 1st. So Jackie Goldberg, looking at the, the whole package, the, the American uh, Rescue Plan, uh, the trouble that Biden might be in moving forward with infrastructure, with immigration reform, because the filibuster might keep him dead, dead in, the, in his tracks, so to speak, not being able to move forward. So your comments on any of those? Jackie Goldberg. 
Well, of course, it seems to me that uh, the, the uh, COVID-19 relief is really uh, a major, major change in a, in a great number of ways, and I think that's uh, the, probably the best description of it. It changes a lot of things, including, uh, for example, for business, got, you know, people think business didn't get much. Well, business got quite a bit in the PPP part because the rules are now changed. They no longer have to, those who got the first round of that money, do not have to list it as income when they pay their taxes, and they do not even have, and they can deduct what they spent it on as a business deduction. This uh, was costed out by some people on CNBC as maybe being worth $20 billion to business and enterprises. So uh, that means there's a little bit of something in this for everybody. I think the airlines get bailed out, which uh, most people, I think, were not unhappy about, although I'm not sure that everybody benefited from the bailout in the same way, of course. I do think that the uh, ability to get a, a increase in the minimum wage exists. It's just not $15 an hour in three or four years. It's probably more like 10 or 11 uh, I think they'll come back, and I think they will get some Republicans who want to do that because there were Republican bills like that in the last Congress uh, that didn't quite get done because, of course, McConnell would never let them come to the floor. Um, I think that the best thing in it, of course, is the monthly payments to people who will help them stay alive and get out of debt. And I, I just think that it was brilliant to make them monthly payments so that people will have an ongoing source of income Moving even uh, 40%, much less 50 or 55%, as some people predict, out of poverty is unbelievable. In my lifetime, I never thought I'd see anything like that happen. What lies ahead is a real puzzle. If uh, our, our West Virginian will not yield on the uh, any form of it, then I think really we're, we're in very big trouble until the next election. Uh, because I don't believe that there will be any movement from the Republicans. They've decided, I think, very early on that anything, even if they like it, they're not going to vote for it, which is something, of course, I saw in Sacramento beginning in about 2003 with Kevin McCarthy. He was a part of that group in Sacramento. This is not new for Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy's view is if I'm not running it, it doesn't happen. And uh, that he's a big problem. He's a huge problem. Um, so I think what we're going to see is we're going to see some battles and skirmishes around uh, 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 not a living wage yet, but at least an increase in the minimum wage. I think that we will begin to see some pressure put on some of the conservative Democrats to perhaps not get rid of the um, uh, uh, um, filibuster, uh, entirely, but you know they can do what what uh, McConnell did. They could get rid of the filibuster in order to do a um, uh, a, a the HR one or HR two or HR three or to just get rid of all to to do the parts that deal the the the, the Voting Rights Act that they've passed already in the House. So there are ways that they can move some things along, but I do think we get a big another second bill. And I think we get a big jobs bill, an infrastructure bill, because they can do that the same way they did this. And I think that is what the hope is, is in, in the future uh, on the Biden agenda, is, is that that will happen. I think that's the last big thing they get, however, until uh, the midterm elections. Right. And, and 
Dr. Gerald Horn, thank you for that, J Jackie Goldberg. You know, uh, Dr. Horn, there is some criticism uh, coming from the left um, to say that the American Rescue Plan doesn't go far enough. There's criticism on even how the U.S. Um, measures poverty. The Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival has made that clear that they think that it is way too low the way uh, the poverty levels are established. And therefore, a lot of people are really challenging the claim by the Biden administration and so many pundits that indeed the child tax credit, for example, would lift 50% of children out of poverty. They are making the case that it may lift that percentage of children out of extreme poverty, but that to lift those families out of poverty, those children, you really need $15 an hour. So you may want to comment on that and also on, on the filibuster and the role that these conservative Democrats like uh, Joe Manchin uh, could play to really muck up the works. Dr. Horn. Well, I think there's something to that criticism but I think we also need to recognize that given the correlation of forces in the United States at this particular moment, uh, this bill was a step forward. What I mean is that the major beneficiaries of this bill include the Euro-American working class and middle class, and yet they voted overwhelmingly for the GOP, which did not vote for this bill. That is to say, they're supporting representatives who then are opposing bills that are in the interests of their constituents. And I think until we wrestle with that fundamental contradiction, we'll always be left with these sorts of criticisms from the left. And I think also it ties into another criticism of the left, if, if I may, which is an inability or reluctance or failure to recognize that this is a settler colonial society whereby Europeans of various class backgrounds sailed across the Atlantic to engage in looting of the Native Americans for their mutual benefit. And that basic embryo that was constructed hundreds of years ago is still in place, which helps to explain that voting pattern that I just mentioned. Now, with regard to this bill, David Brooks in the New York Times says that the billions allotted to black farmers is a step towards reparations for centuries of enslavement of Africans and reparations to their descendants in the 21st century. Uh, Paul Krugman in the New York Times says that the bill is a retreat from Reaganism insofar as it, in his opinion, marks a retreat from the attack on uh, so-called welfare queens, which helped to destabilize uh, social transfer payments under Clinton, leading to that movement of so-called welfare, as we know it, being uh, ended. At the same time, once again, I think that it would be premature to uh, pop the cork on the uh, champagne bottle because we still have this filibuster, as you mentioned, which is still in play. We still have the possibility of a filibuster not only for immigration reform and infrastructure, but for the George Floyd Policing Act, which would seek to circumscribe the chokeholds, which led to the killing of Eric Garner and George uh, Floyd, uh, would seek to circumscribe the no-knock raids, which led to the death of Breonna Taylor in Louisville, 
We still have a bill passed by the House that would seek to tighten background checks with regard to gun purchases. That will probably be filibustered. We still have the PRO Act, the Right to Organize Act, which is a priority for organized labor, which would make it easier to organize trade unions and might be one of the most significant pieces of legislation during this particular Congress. That'll probably be filibustered as well. And I think that what we need to consider is that the AFL-CIO, and I salute their coming out against the filibuster, but they need to look at their history and recognize that reform was not just effectuated by electing progressive representatives. It was effectuated by mass action on the part of the labor movement. Uh, that is to say, uh, when are we going to see Simmons at the office of Senator Manchin of West Virginia or Senator Sinema of Arizona? Or where, where, when are we going to see a primary against Senator Sinema of Arizona, who in a very grotesque and gratuitous manner turned thumbs down on voting for a $15 an hour uh, minimum wage? And also, when are we going to see movement towards D.C. statehood? Uh, that is to say, having two senators from the District of Columbia could go a long way towards eroding the pernicious impact of the filibuster. So once again, I think that we've made a step forward, but there's still a long road to travel during this congressional term. Absolutely. Thank you for that, um, Dr. Horn. And I have to say that I am a supporter of the child tax credits working in my community work at the base. And you ask any impoverished mother if she has a problem um, getting $300 a month per child if her child is under six years old or between six and 17, $250 per month per child, uh, do they think that's a bad idea? And of course they won't. So a lot of that criticism coming really from advocates. And, and also I wonder if the $15 an hour had made it into the bill, but the child tax credits had not made it in the bill, if the bill would be criticized um, in the way that it is by our friends on the left. I just think it's really something to think about. Uh, and uh, labor, organized labor having to stand up not only for those of us who are, at, are on the factories or in page work, but for those of us, as Laura Carlson mentioned earlier, who are unpaid doing the vital work of taking care of everybody. On that note, we're going to take a station break. And when we return, um, voter suppression, really worrying. And we know who's being targeted. 43 states, new bills since the election. Uh, stay with us. Our panelists will be right back. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. All righty, the late, great uh, Bob Marley, get up, stand up. This is Margaret Prescott host of Sojourner Truth. And our website sadly has crashed. Our webmaster is uh, working on on that. And by the way, I have to pay for that out of pocket if there's any out there that would like to uh, support us. And believe me, it's not like I could afford it. But anyway, we are on Facebook. Um, you just look for us on, on Facebook if you're a member. And our handle on 
Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And uh, today we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in that great state of Indiana. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our listeners throughout the Caribbean region, all of those Caribbean islands. And it is our weekly roundtable. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, and Dr. Gerald Horn. And now we're going to turn our attention to what the Republicans are up to with this spate of voter suppression laws. Across the U.S., following the November 2020 election, there has been a wave of new uh, proposals aimed at restricting voting, which, well, they are forms of voter suppression. Let us go um, to a clip now from the Washington Post about what's happening in Georgia as well as other states. So for anyone who's been paying attention, the whole reason that the New Georgia Project exists is because of tactics and shenanigans like this. While most states uh, expanded um, no fault, no no excuse absentee balloting because of the pandemic that Mm -hmm. we're living through, Georgia was not one of those states. And now all of a sudden, um, you know, they have questions about election integrity. Um, So uh, listen, we anticipated it and, you know, we are prepared to defend our work and defend access to the franchise. A new push to change election laws extends beyond Georgia. Republican lawmakers in battleground states across the country have pushed for additional voting restrictions. Last month, the Republican National Committee chair encouraged state legislatures to take up election measures after Trump's loss. We are going to come out of this with a mission, a mission to go to our state legislators, to go to our leaders and make sure that what we saw in this election never happens again, that poll watchers are allowed to observe that we put meaningful voter ID laws in the books, and that we make sure that every American has faith in our election process. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, more than 100 bills have been introduced in nearly 40 states to restrict voting access. More than a third of them are meant to limit mail voting, which was the focus of Trump's baseless fraud claims. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, They can try to steal the election from us. It's worth noting, just because bills are being introduced doesn't mean they'll be enacted. Any member of a legislature can introduce a bill that may or may not have support in the broader chamber or be signed into law by the governor. But in many of the states that decided the 2020 election, like Georgia, Republicans have the power to enact such laws that could affect future elections for years to come. As Republicans have been reckoning with just how much they want to turn the page on the Trump era, I think it's clear that we're seeing many state Republican parties are going to make that difficult. National level, as far as promoting the president's voter fraud claims, we're often seeing some of these state parties go even further uh, with conspiracy theories, with uh, measures to censure people who run afoul of the president, and even more generally, just with promoting the Trump angle on these things in a way that we don't even see with some of these national Republican leaders. 
We're in a critical like redistricting year um, where they are redrawing maps and lines. And so my hope is that when we win, that it will give us a reprieve uh, and we won't have to be fighting these same fights over the next decade. Right. So Jackie Goldberg, we're actually going to start with you on, on this round. I mean, the some of the news reports vary. Some were saying, say, there are 250 voting restrictions proposed in 43 states. That's seven times the number introduced in state legislatures by the same time last year. In Pennsylvania alone, there are 14 voter suppression bills. And even in California, uh, there are two. Um, Jackie Goldberg, your comment on on what's going on here? Well, of course, if you have decided that you're not going to change your party line, that might appeal to more voters, and that's the decision. Voter suppression means the only way we can win is to not have people vote, as opposed to the only way we can win is to have a good thing to say about what we want to do and people buy into it. So it is an admission that they have no way to be the majority party. That's the admission. The problem is, is of course, because of gerrymandering in the past, you have states that even have more 50-50 division between Democrats and Republicans, having legislatures controlled by Republicans because they put all the Democrats in one uh, congressional seat or one Senate seat or assembly seat. And uh, then, of course, uh, only Republicans can win that, those seats, uh, and the Democrats uh, have been put all in one, so they haven't got any power in the other uh, races. This is an ongoing problem. This is not new. A lot of them will not get passed, but a lot of them will. And it is a complete and underlying admission by the Republicans everywhere in the country that they cannot win if everybody votes. Well, that's, that's an extraordinary admission for them, and I think that we ought to be broadcasting as much and widely as we can that that's who they've become. They've become a party that says that we really don't care to reach out to the people who don't like our message. We don't really care to reach out to people of color. We don't really care to worry about all Americans. Uh, no, we don't really. And, and I think it is a terrible travesty, but it's nothing new. It can be fought. It can be fought in two or three ways. One is I'm sending money every month now to two or three of the legal defense funds, the NAACPs and others, because they're going to fight all of these bills, and many of them will be found unconstitutional even when they are passed. But the second and most important way to defeat it is by organizing voters, because the truth of the matter is is that they can't actually stop you from voting if you've organized all of the people, as we've seen in Georgia, where they had voter suppression laws, they won anyway. Why did they win anyway? They out-organized everybody. And that's really the goal now. Everybody has to be around dealing with organizing people to vote because it is no longer acceptable to just assume that they'll do it since there are so many states that are trying to make it harder and harder and harder for them to vote. Laura Carlson, your thoughts. Yeah, I think what we're seeing, and they actually announced it, <clears throat> excuse me, is that the Republican Party is on a mission to restrict voting. And we have to understand that this is well orchestrated. It's a priority campaign of the right 
both the party and the far right organizations. It has resources, it has political clout, it has control over the party, and we're going to see this growing throughout the years. This is their response to losing the election, their desperate response to losing the majority within the country, as Jackie pointed out. And it's also their response to, uh, uh, to erode democracy, since democracy no longer works for them. Um, we are looking at this Georgia bill and when you see the logic behind it, it's very difficult, you would think, to justify restricting <clears throat> voting and disenfranchising voters in a democracy. And yet that's exactly what they're doing. And they're actually using the disproven claims of, a 20, of fraud in the 2020 presidential elections to do it. Some of the ways that they're looking to restrict voting are just so illogical from any even pseudo-democratic perspective. You know, they're talking in Georgia, which is probably one of the most draconian of all the proposals. They're talking about um, restricting the use of mail mail drop boxes. Obviously, mail voting has been one of the biggest targets of these. Um, they're eliminating no excuse absentee voting, implementing absolutely absurd voter identification requirements that are clearly targeted at populations of people in color. Um, they're eliminate, preventing counties from receiving grants to improve their electoral processes, adding, uh, giving election officials, officials less, less time. And then you find these measures where you just have to wonder, you know, how they think they can even get away with this. They're actually trying to make it a crime to distribute food and water to voters who are waiting in line. Um, so they want to make it that you physically have to suffer in order to exercise your vote, <laughs> which is the basic right within a, within a democracy. And in Iowa and so many other states, we're really basically seeing the same thing where a reduction in the voting period a reduction in how many hours and days there are in the deadlines for returning absentee ballots. So this is going to go on. This is clearly just the beginning of a major campaign to restrict democracy within the country. They're going to be chiseling away at democratic rights on the state level and also in the courts as time goes on. And we have to be able to see not only how to pass legislation that would prevent some of this, but also how to organize on the grassroots le or level to say this is not okay, to fight back at the state level and to defend some of those hard won gains in terms of, in terms of access to the vote. Yes, and Dr. Gerald Horn, since 2013, when the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act that was so hard fought by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, the entire civil rights movement, we have seen the chipping away at the right to vote. And even though there are a lot of people across race that are impacted by voter suppression, we know very well that it's black and brown, including indigenous communities that are targeted. And members of Congress 
Congress are now um, working on the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act to reform the election uh, system. And this act would reform the Voting Rights Act and strengthen the provisions in it to protect um, the freedom to vote, especially for voters of color. But there is no guarantee that that's really going to get through this Congress, given the blocking that's happening uh, by Republicans. So um, your your thoughts on, on what's going on here, Dr. Horn? Well, it's clear that the United States, at least the right wing in the United States, is trying to return this country to its apartheid origins. Uh, we need to remember that the reason, one of the major reasons we got the Voting Rights Act through Congress in 1965 was not only because of pressure from below, particularly in Dixie, but pressure from the then-socialist camp and National Liberation Forces in the United States to get its house in order, which was difficult to do as long as people of African descent in particular were treated so atrociously. That pressure has receded, and so therefore you see the advancement of anti-democracy. And speaking of anti-democracy, we need to realize that circumscribing the right to vote is just one aspect of a multi-pronged assault on democracy that does not exclude armed struggle. I think that's the import of January 6, 2021. And during our hiatus, during the fund drive, you might have missed, some listeners might have missed the riveting testimony before Congress of William Walker of the Washington, D.C. National Guard, who testified at length about the three hours plus delay in getting authorization from the Pentagon to send his forces to rescue these harried and harassed congresspersons. This was obviously a manipulation by the recently appointed head of the Pentagon by Mr. Trump after the uh, ouster of Mark Esper in November 2020. And you might have also missed the statement by Lieutenant General Russell Honore, who was appointed by Speaker Pelosi to investigate January 6th, who spoke at length about the, quote, complicity, unquote, of the Capitol Police with regard to the insurrectionists. I think one of the most important fronts right now with regard to voting is taking place in Congress itself, where there is an ongoing attempt to expel members of Congress who have been found to be complicit with regard to the insurrection of January 6th. This includes such stalwarts as Congressman Mo Brooks of Alabama, Congressman Gosar of Arizona, and also pay careful attention to the lawsuits brought by Congressman uh, Benny Thompson of Mississippi and Congressman Eric Swalwell of California, directed against uh, Mr. Trump and the insurrectionists, where if they survive the attempt to throw these cases out of court, it will lead to discovery. That is to say, a process whereby uh, Thompson and Swalwell and their lawyers can dip into the records of Mr. Trump and the insurrectionists to get a better understanding of what they were exactly planning on January 6, 2021. Absolutely. And uh, Dr. Horn, we're actually going to stay with you um, because we're going to go into our final round about foreign policy. And while on the one hand, there's a lot to applaud for uh, Joe Biden's attempts to uh, undo some of what um, Donald Trump uh, put in place and also the, the stimulus package, there's a lot uh, to praise there. 
But when it comes to U.S. foreign policy, how much daylight is there between uh, Biden and Trump? We just saw, I just read an article about it is thought that Israel has basically bombed, you know, something like a dozen ships for carrying oil from Iran. Um, there seem to be mixed messages from the Biden administration in relation to Yemen. On the one hand, standing up against the atrocious humanitarian crisis happening there, but on the other hand, talking about continuing to support uh, Saudi Arabia. And then, of course, the meetings coming up with China. Um, and with China very much uh, the crosshairs of the Biden administration. And then there's Venezuela and Haiti and much more. So, Dr. Horn, uh, let's have you weigh in here. Well, you can add, add to that litany the unfortunate bombing of Syria that took place a couple of weeks ago on behalf of the Biden team. Uh, that obviously was a regressive step, a negative step. And speaking of China, it's not only the fact that today Mr. Trump, Mr. Biden will be having a virtual meeting with leaders in Japan, Australia, and India, the so-called Quad, which includes the United States, which is part of this encirclement move against China. But also uh, within the next day or so, there will be an important meeting in Alaska between Secretary of State uh, Blinken and National Security Advisor Sullivan and their Chinese counterparts where the United States is expected to raise, predictably, the question of the Uyghurs, uh, Hong Kong, uh, Taiwan, Tibet. But probably, and I say this with no sense of satisfaction, the Chinese will not raise correspondingly the police terror that has been inflicted upon black communities in particular in the United States of America. But in any case, the foreign policy of the Biden team has a fundamental structural flaw which is that it relies heavily upon support from a black community, which since the Cold War organizationally has retreated from confrontations on foreign policy because we see that when you confront U.S. imperialism on foreign policy, as Martin Luther King did, you oftentimes wind up dead. But that gives Mr. Biden more leeway and latitude to get enmeshed in more misadventures. That's the problem. And speaking of misadventures, I can think of no greater one than this so-called idea of dual containment confronting Russia and China simultaneously, which, of course, is driving them together, the most recent evidence being the report that they're constructing a lunar station on the moon, which I'm sure the Pentagon will see, I'm afraid to say, is some sort of military base on the moon, which I think is misguided at best. But then there's the problem of having the so-called allies on board. It's not clear to me, at least, if Germany will sign on to this dual containment because they become heavily dependent upon Russian natural gas, for example, then that's about to move away from the gas pipeline from Russia into Germany, which helps to warm homes. And then there's France, which speaks of strategic autonomy, that is to say, France has not forgotten the lesson of the Trump years with regard to slapping allies in the face. And so, therefore, it's trying to move away from reliance upon Washington. And Washington makes, has, a, has a difficulty in objecting since they're always pressuring the Europeans to spend more on their own defense. And then, as we said before on this program, Brexit, the British exit from the European Union, has weakened 
U.S. influence within the highest councils of the EU and in Brussels. And so it seems to me that if there's not a swift reversal, the Biden team is headed for a crack up, a crash with regard to foreign policy. Yes, and, and Laura Carlson and Jackie Goldberg, have you weigh in uh, quickly. Time flies when you're having fun. We only have likely about a minute and a half for each of you. Uh, Laura Carlson, your thoughts. Well, I'll focus on Central America, the region that I work in. And there has there's an emphasis in the Biden foreign policy on especially Guatemala, Honduras, and and um, El Salvador because of the source of immigration. But what's happening there is we're seeing a lot of divisions within the government because it began with the idea of $4 billion that development aid will reduce immigration with no sense whatsoever that these governments are corrupt Juan Orlando Hernandez, the president of Honduras, is again an, implicated in another court case with charges of drug trafficking and money laundering. Um, there are significant accusations that he's very closely involved with the cartels in the country, and yet yeah. none of this seemed to matter. And now what we're beginning to see is there are factions within the government that are pressing for a more astute analysis and backing off from some of, this, from some of the, the strategies of the past under the Obama administration of supporting a drug war, of, of propping up right-wing allies in the region, in fact. So I think yep. that we're going to see this in several different areas in, in foreign relations, um, where there's some tensions within the administration itself between the continuism that we're seeing, for example, in the policy toward Venezuela of sanctions and isolation that is hurting the population and of pressure for a more progressive stance. Right. Thank you, Laura Carlson. Jackie Goldberg, I'm afraid one minute you got the short here, Jackie, I'm afraid. That's okay. I don't mind. Uh, I would say that uh, with Israel and the Middle East, uh, the first thing that I noticed is, is that, that uh, Biden did not talk about two-state uh, solutions when he had his first conversation. That's a very disturbing notion. But he did say that uh, he wanted uh, to uh, reopen talks with Iran Several uh, Gulf state Arab countries have said they want to be more involved in any uh, Iranian discussions of a new deal. Biden also is facing questions about whether or not to uh, claw back any of the uh, Trump uh, 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 um, um, uh, problems for uh, Iran in terms of their bank and the uh, uh, those kinds of things. We also uh, have seen that Biden has a long relationship with Israel and Netanyahu, and that's very disturbing to some of us because uh, many of us in the community want to see uh, Biden take a stronger stand against those uh, uh, new settlements being built and also to can get back on the agenda a two-state solution without which there is no solution in the Middle East. Right. 
We are out of time. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, including assistant producer Romero Funes and today's audio engineer. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. And remember to visit our website, sotrueradio.org, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at So True Radio. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.